0: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co.
2: Pushkin. this is talk easy i'm sam fragoso welcome to the show Today, I'm joined by actor, comedian, writer, Quinta Brunson. If you peruse the internet from 2014 to 2017, you likely saw Brunson performing in comedy videos for BuzzFeed. She then went on to co-create and star in series like Quinta vs. Everything, A Black Lady Sketch Show, and most recently, the hit ABC sitcom Abbott Elementary. The show recently made Brunson the first black woman to receive three Emmy comedy nominations in a year, and only the second black woman to win the award for outstanding writing for a comedy series. In it, Brunson plays Janine Teagues, a dedicated, wide-eyed second grade teacher in a predominantly black elementary school in Philadelphia. After its premiere in 2021, Abbott Elementary quickly rose to prominence, with some critics claiming that the show had single-handedly revived the network sitcom. The character is partially inspired by Brunson's mother, who taught kindergarten in Philadelphia public schools for nearly 40 years. While, of course, a comedy at its core, Abbott is also a celebration of teachers, the ones endlessly fighting for their students, the ones working above and beyond in under-resourced districts, the ones that really care. It has just now returned for its second season, which you can watch every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and then the next day on Hulu. For today's talk, Quinta and I discussed the driving force behind season two, the shows that inspired her from In Living Color to Welcome Back Connor, the formative schooling she received growing up in West Philadelphia, how she forged her unlikely path in comedy, and so much more. So. Without further ado, this is Quinta Brunson. Quinta Brunson.
3: How you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. You okay? Yeah, I'm good. I'm here. Should we stop now? No. <laughs> no, I'm doing well, honestly.
2: You don't traditionally like doing podcasts very much. Is that true?
3: This is true.
2: And you've made the exception for us.
3: Yes, I've heard so many good friends speak so highly of this podcast. I don't listen to podcasts, so I have never listened to it myself. I find them a little intimidating. I mean, Do you? Talking too much scares me. So, yeah.
2: If you just want to stop talking and have me talk, <laughs> okay, I'll jump right in. All right, cool. <laughs> okay, so going into the first season of Abbott Elementary, you talked about how you wanted to provide respite from a global pandemic, a fragile democracy, an escalating climate crisis, the list goes on. You said, the world is in a crazy place. We just wanted to make a feel-good sitcom that was 22 minutes long. That families can watch together but wasn't corny and could still be for everyone. Mm -hmm. Now that the world is basically fixed (laughs) and the problems I mentioned no longer exist, what's the driving force of season two?
3: I think the driving force now is I enjoy making it. As you said, the whole world is fixed now. So I still want people to be happy, though. I think there's something really beautiful about people just enjoying something sweet and short. And I think our show doesn't require much like brain power. Well, it doesn't hurt to have brain power. It doesn't hurt. Everyone's going to have fun. But there are a lot of television programs that I think require a lot of um, mental... Gymnastics, like, everyone's watching the Dahmer series right now, and I feel Mm. like everyone is crushed with the weight of watching the Dahmer series. It just feels like a weighted thing for people to watch, and I feel like Abbott doesn't feel that weighted. Granted, people think about the state of American public schools, but that's not my intention. I think that's just inherent to the creation of a show about a public school. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people take away man, I'm having fun watching Abert. I'm really enjoying myself. But man, the the public school system is fucked up. It's like, yeah, you you should know that also. And I hope you're moved to action by that. But ultimately, really just still enjoy making a show that people enjoy. You're almost making it sound like the show is weightless. I think you're underselling. The show. Yeah, a little bit. Maybe. I don't think it's weightless. I think it's just not as heavy as some others. Not as heavy as Dahmer? Not as heavy as Dahmer. You should put that on the poster of season two. (laughs) Abbott Elementary, not Dahmer.
2: You have this quote. If I go back home to my family in Philadelphia and I ask my mother, cousin, uncle, niece, if they're watching Succession, <laughs> they're going to say no. Yet Succession is hip, cool. Everyone writes about it. But the hippest, coolest thing isn't always for everyone. And that's okay. Network TV is inherently made for the people. Abbott is in this middle space between the two.
3: Bars. This is why I get scared. I just be talking. I don't have any recollection of when I said that. And that's crazy to me. That's why it's scary. But here we are.
2: Going into the second season, what was your frame of mind?
3: I think it allowed me to trust myself even more. The first season felt very intentional. But like with any art, you know you're making something and you can't control how it's received. You hope that your art is received in the way you intended it to be. And it was. And it it caused conversation. It did stuff that I didn't necessarily intend for it to do, but it still added to it being, I think, a great cultural piece. What do you mean by that? So, for instance, you know, last season there was an episode about the Gifted program. And when that episode aired, and I think two or three days later, I remember online, people were having this extensive conversation about the ethics of having a gifted program at all. That wasn't necessarily a conversation that we were trying to create. So it's awesome that people are motivated to have these conversations and motivated to reach out to their local public schools and donate. <laughs> that All of that is more than we could have asked for. And so in the second season, it felt like we should just do more of the same. We really trust ourselves and we just have to do more of what we were already doing.
2: And the thing you were doing, I think above all else, is being funny.
3: I think so too. <laughs> Why
2: don't we watch a clip from the new season of Habit Elementary?
3: Watch a clip on the podcast? Oh. Ava, I see you. I saw you see me make three trips. You couldn't have helped me? I could've. That was an option. Okay, oh Jacob, oh, I missed you. Please never go to Peru again. You not having service was the worst.
1: Oh, it's so nice to be called Jacob again. After teaching abroad and being called El Diablo Blanco every day, I really started to feel like basura. Oh. somebody say trash?
3: Welcome back, dorks. And welcome back, Abbott Elementary staff. Let's have a great development week. I'll see you guys in the auditorium at nine. <laughs> Most people think school starts when the kids get here, but it actually starts now, at development week. Teachers prep for the year. We get ready, get our curriculum, we research our students, make plans. It's the calm before the storm. It's very zen, actually.
0: I had a fantastic summer. After my cruise to Jamaica, all-inclusive, I worked with Ava to properly appropriate the funds that we got from the grant last year. And I found out in early July that I would be welcoming a student who uses a wheelchair. So I was very excited to be able to use part of that grant money to get a new ramp installed. My next goal is to get that student the appropriate desk and follow up on the shoes I lost on the cruise. I was very inebriated. Oh, see, Barbara is different than land, Barbara. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Barbara and I have that in common.
3: <laughs> she just keeps getting funnier. I was watching an episode yesterday, a cut of an episode, which is episode eight. And I just texted her. I was like, how do you keep getting funnier? And she's so not aware. She just is such a good actress that it, I don't know. Whatever. That's not the
2: point. Sure it is. Even in that scene, you get a sense of these teachers, that that they love this job, mm-hmm. but that the job is demanding probably too much from them. And over and over again, you've talked about this, but I like this quote where you said, what if we took the approach that teachers are real people instead of heightened stereotypes? Do you think that is why people have come to this show? Because in some ways, they can always see a version of the teachers they had or are having.
3: Absolutely. Teachers, everyone has one or everyone was one. Lisa and Walter says that on our show, like it's literally someone we all have come into contact with one way or another. You know, even in past shows about teachers, all of which I feel I'm a student of, things like Welcome Back, Cotter, Mr. Cotter, shows with teachers in them that were prominent, like Boy Meets World or even like Never Have I Ever, the focus is on the kids. But still, though, the typical funny approach was People hate this job they're doing. You know, they hate the students and how bad it is. But all the teachers in my life, like my mother, they love the job. It's really the only reason to do it because it's not the pay. My mom is just a teacher to the core. Even when she retired, she still keeps teaching. It's just who she is. And I think that's so inspiring and beautiful. And what I tried to bring into Abbott, there's no pulling Barbara away from this job. There's no pulling Janine away from it. I think the character Gregory is learning that there's no pulling him away from it. Like, this is who you, you are. But then you still have your personal life. You still have bills. You still have to deal with the things everyone else deals with. So I thought that was also the beauty in, like, the mockumentary format. I wanted people to feel like they worked at Abbott or went to Abbott, too, so that they could be immersed in this world and feel the joy that these people feel. And the love and the fun and the humor, it's so all-encompassing. My mom worked around the clock to be a good teacher. It's not just those, you know, hours of eight to three. It's so much that goes into it. So I wanted to flesh that out for everyone out there who didn't know what it was like. She was your kindergarten teacher, right? My mom was my kindergarten teacher, yes. How was that? It was chill. It was so normal. Let me tell you something.
2: My mom... (laughs) Teaching me in the kindergarten. It wouldn't have worked out? No, it wouldn't have worked out. Why? Are you kidding?
3: You would have just been a child. You wouldn't have known.
2: Trust me, my mom would have made her presence known.
3: Do you have a good relationship with your mom now? Can we
2: stop recording?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, not Sam's mom.
2: Yes, we have a very good relationship.
3: Okay, good, good, good. I think it would have been nice. It's all
2: love. It's just that the joke was too easy. Yeah. But your mom is your teacher. She's your teacher in kindergarten. Then from first to fifth grade, You attend Holly, a learning program on the top floor of Herodie Elementary School in West Philadelphia.
3: Mm -hmm. It's now Mastery Charter School. Changed into a charter. I wasn't going to mention that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: What did that program teach you about who you were and where you came from?
3: So a Holly was incredible. It was. You were in the same program from first to fifth grade. You had the same teachers. They just, you know, changed the curriculum when you, of course, changed grades. But I had two teachers, Umian and Mangosi, and they were my teachers for all five years. Two very different women. Two very different women. Yes, you read the book. Yes. And in this program, it was based in African learning and learning your Black history first So Ahali, the name means family, and that's what it felt like. While we learned everything that the other kids were learning, we had multiple lessons on Black history a day, and they didn't really pull any punches. I learned about the slave trade in first grade and learned about the civil rights era in first grade. And I always tell the story because I think it's the best way to sum it up, you know, while other kids in other second grade classes We're watching like Beauty and the Beast. We watched Amistad and I was like, hmm. Um, That movie's tough to watch now. It's tough to watch, period. But they really believed in telling us the truth and telling us our history. It was just learning what the world was, what the country was for Black people at an early age. In all honesty, I think it improved my life greatly. It made me able to navigate the world in a different way
2: because they were centering blackness in the curriculum.
3: Yes. My controversial thought is that I feel that should be the case for every every person. I think that like if you are Hispanic American, I think it's so vital to learn about your history in this country before going out into the world. I think the same thing for white American children. You should know your full well-rounded history instead of, you know, being denied it and you find out later what your ancestors did and what they were capable of. I think it's just helpful to know sooner. So you can be like, all right, fuck. Let's just, (laughs) let's not do that again. (laughs) Because I think the later you find out, the more defensive you are, one way or another.
2: Because you feel you've been deceived.
3: Deceived, lied to, betrayed. I have a lot of friends Black Americans who didn't really find out about the history of Black people in America until they got to college. Mm. And at that point, why the fuck did nobody tell, You know, it's like, okay, I didn't know this information on purpose. And honestly, maybe that's true, like that so much of our history is missing from modern textbooks or that slavery is like reduced to a page in your history book. It'd be helpful to know all of that so you have a better center of gravity. I think about therapy a lot when people have to go to therapy later to sift through their childhoods and sift through trauma. And they get in therapy this opportunity to unlock repressed feelings, things they didn't know about their family, things they, they didn't get the chance to ever reconcile and now are affecting them poorly in adulthood. I think it's something that could help like repair the country, which feels beyond repair. But I just feel like if we all stop lying to ourselves.
2: I thought we just agreed that we had repaired all the problems.
3: Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. (laughs) Um, Never mind. Forget everything I just said.
2: I think if that's a controversial opinion, then uh, we got more problems than I thought.
3: We do have more problems than we thought. All I know is like my experience with like a Holly, it never became up for debate. Do you know what I mean? It never was a debatable, actionable item that people could shut down. It just, you know, was happening.
2: Back when you were... Coming of age in the mid-90s.
3: Yes. Different world back then.
2: At that age, you said, even though an enormous weight was dropped on my back, I felt like I could take on the world because I was given a keen awareness of how society worked and treated black people. Mm -hmm. It's also around this time, I think age six or seven, that you started, in your words, flirting (laughs) with comedy. What did that flirtation look like?
3: It looked like... Really wanting to make my siblings laugh. My siblings were much older than me. Yeah, four. I was their little clown. And I started doing stuff like reciting lines from their favorite shows, which were In Living Color and Martin. I love that feeling. I loved making these people laugh. I didn't know this when I was a little kid, but I came so much later that my, my brother, who was closest to me, was like pissed. He was like, I was the baby. Where'd she come from? And I wasn't on purpose. I was a surprise baby. And my older siblings, they seem so far away from me, but making them laugh, I felt that that brought me closer. I thought that was the one way to be super close to these people, was to be able to make them laugh.
2: In the book he wrote, slowly I began building up characters and stories in my head, ones that I knew would get people laughing. It felt good to be loved, but it felt better to get a laugh. Did you believe those two things were mutually exclusive?
3: No, I don't think they were. Because it wasn't always like a laugh, per se. It was just entertaining people and getting that kind of emotional response from them. Like I started out a dancer. My dad really or other people would be like, I just love like watching you dance. That to me is so powerful to get an emotional response from art. I imagine it's what a painter wants when they paint something. Just an emotional response of whether they laugh, cry, cry are just experiencing extreme joy. That's something that I really enjoyed from a a young age.
2: In high school, your mother gives you her Mac laptop. On it, you start editing videos on iMovie, using Photo Booth. Was she supportive of that art that you are talking
3: about at that age? No, because I didn't really show her what I was doing. She got the Mac... Through the Philadelphia public school system, one year they gave all the teachers Macs, which was super cool. She didn't even really know what that was. You know, (laughs) she's like, what is this? And I was like, Mom, you have a MacBook. This was a big, big deal at the time. And so I would be like, can I see it? Can I play on it? Can I see it? She's like, yeah, fine, whatever. Like, just don't break it. And I was like, I won't break it. I would never break such a a beautiful thing. And I was just... Did you just... Praise the Mac laptop. You have to remember, this was 2006. The Mac book was game changing. You know, iMovie, game changing. I started a little talk show called The Rant, and that followed me into college where I just interviewed random people on my campus, and that started expanding. All of a sudden, I was like interviewing people in Chicago and (laughs) different college campuses, and it was just fun to make that kind of art, which I think the MacBook allowed me to do. Very grateful for the invention of the MacBook. At
2: 1819, you start attending Temple University. Yep. The verdict on whether your mother was supporting your creativity, where did we land on that?
3: It was really a no. She didn't see the stability and the things that I wanted to do once she did start like finding out. As you read the book, I wrote about it in my book, when I was just, like, going to improv club. She was like, what is this? My mom understood stand-up. And yes, she understood TV, but I was starting at ground zero of Zip, Zap, Zop. And she was like, this is nonsense, and we don't have time for nonsense, and why are you doing that?
2: To be fair, when I first saw the Zip, Zap, Mm -hmm. zap, Mm Zop, I also thought,
3: what's happening? What's happening? And that's why I was totally it my mom's choice to not support that
2: the zip taps on.
3: <laughs> completely support that it looks like nonsense it does I, I watch improvisers do it now and I'm like God it is so awful but some of you will go on to become some of the greatest comedic minds of our time so when you join this group foul play <laughs> yes oh my god in
2: college <laughs> your mother one night drives you to your friend Scott's house yep Scott he had an apartment I believe on campus yep What happened when you two roll up and park?
3: We get in a fight. She's like, why are you going into this boy's house? And I'm like, we're just hanging out and doing improv. And she's like, I don't trust this situation. These are nerds. I cannot state enough how these were the most typical nerds. They should have been out having sex and they were in the house doing improv. (laughs) And... Listening to uh, what's that one singer? They put me on to him actually. Um, Oh, fuck. Uh, I could hold you in my They put me on a bunch of white shit, a bunch of like stuff I'd never heard. Keep looking at me like I'm gonna know. I know you know. You don't know if I know. I'm pretty sure you know. And they, you know, they had ukuleles and guitars. You think I
2: like ukuleles?
3: I'm just saying things that I know. Or probably in your background somewhere. Hey! Or you had a friend or a friend that partook in stringed instrument behavior. Ray Lamont, Lamontage. That's who they, they put me on to. Yeah, that's out here. <laughs> And Sky was always playing. It. So these were just the biggest dorks ever. I was like, Mom, you really have to chill. Like, for real. And we got into a fight and she told me my earrings were too big. It was just a constant pick at me and who I was becoming. It was ultimately a fear of what, All of this could turn into, you know, my mom, she left the dance world behind. She's a very good dancer, but eventually she had to like raise a family and focus on being a good mother. The artist world and being a mother, having a sustainable income, they don't go hand in hand. And I feel like I don't know when I'm going to be able to have a child because of my job and because this is where my passion lies now. But my mom made her choice, and her choice was her family and her kids. So I think the arts weren't realistic to her anymore. She had her first child at 20, and here I am approaching my 20s, and I wasn't shutting the arts down. I was going further into them. I didn't know at the time what we were really arguing about. It's not until you get older, and you're like, oh, man, She wasn't trying to criticize me for no reason. She was afraid. But my mom and I have since had talks where I'm like, you truly raised me so well that there was no way I was ever going to turn into what you were afraid of.
2: Was part of this, as you write in the book, some battle over a religion?
3: Yes, I was raised a Jehovah's Witness. I was a kid growing up in West Philly, pretty rough city. My mom just wanted us to have protection in every single way, me and the rest of my siblings. And being Jehovah's Witnesses was another layer of that protection. It's a religion that keeps you from getting into any trouble, except for the trouble that eventually finds its way in a secular branch of Christianity. But, you know, I didn't want to be anyone anymore, and I was pulling away from it. And I think that also scared her, you know, like without religion, you're not at the whims of having fear of. God. And I didn't think that was true. I was figuring it out at the time, but I think I always knew like I can be spiritual without this religion. Like I said, was grateful because I think it kept me out of so much trouble, kept me on the straight and narrow path. But eventually I just knew that it wasn't going to work out for me.
2: You said, it's a pretty strict religion to people who aren't in it, but I continued to push the boundaries until I eventually pushed my way out of it. I just wasn't going to be able to be the person I wanted to be while being part of this religion. At 18, 19, 20, who was that person that you wanted to be?
3: I wanted to go to improv club. <laughs> I did. And I was like, if this is a big deal, exactly. I was like, I can't be here. Like foul play is out of bounds. I wanted to go zip, zap, zap. And that was looking really nasty to the Jehovah's Witness. Uh, I was like, well, I can't be here. This is the smallest thing I want to do. I was just like, (laughs) what the fuck? I was just like, I just want to go do some improv. And this is a big problem. I didn't want anything to be taboo for me. If I wanted to talk about sex, I would want to talk about sex. If I wanted to curse, because you're not even supposed to curse, I would want to curse. You're not supposed to watch certain things. I wanted to watch whatever I wanted. (laughs) It was a breakup. It was like, it's not you, it's me. And that's what I felt it was. I didn't necessarily have a bad word to say about the religion, but I just knew that it wasn't for me anymore. You break up
2: from this person that you were to basically pursue comedy, And then to eventually experience life outside of West Philly. Mm -hmm. I believe during your freshman year of college, you traveled to Chicago to take a Second City improv class over on Wells Street. After a week of courses, there's like a showcase for the class.
3: What do you remember about that performance? I remember feeling like I was like at home. I felt super aligned with who I was supposed to be. I felt... At home, at peace, there was no question about whether or not this is where I belong. It was like, okay, no, I belong here. And I think it became very clear to me that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Not necessarily being a stage performer, but writing and performing comedy. That's when I was like, okay, this is part of my purpose to do this. I still didn't really tell anyone, but everything I started doing was all for that. Like when I got a job at Apple in Philly... It was like so that I could eventually move <laughs> to, because I was like, oh, the Apple store, they'll move you to another store and give you like a small relocation fee? Bomb. Like not only do I want to work there, not only do I have Apple, but eventually I'll be able to move to Chicago or LA and still have a job. But I didn't tell anyone that. It was like my little like, <laughs> my little plan that I I don't even think I told the plan to myself, if that makes sense. <laughs> like It was just... You didn't say it like in the shower to yourself? No, 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 no. I think I now have i have a brain that's functioning here and then there's something back here that's like, here's... It's just a little feeling that's like, here's what we're going to be focusing on for the next 10 years. But yeah, go ahead, frontal lobe and do what you think you're doing. Does that make sense? It does. Okay.
2: It's like you're in your early 20s. You have this plan for yourself. But you almost don't want to put it into words because then suddenly it becomes real and the weight of something that is real, it's just easier if it lives in the imagination.
3: Absolutely. It's different for different people. You know, if it doesn't come true, I think that can sometimes like fuck people up instead of just enjoying the ride. And if it happens, it happens I don't know. You never know what is going to happen. And if you're just living and just going on for the ride of life, it's much easier to never be disappointed.
2: (laughs) We'll be right back with Quinta Brunson.
0: Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization this event sounds like your thing. I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at t-mobile.com/unconventional awards. That's t-mobile.com/unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat.
1: Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Co.
0: Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month only much, much better. Just go to Muzora.com, musora.com, M U S O R A.com to start a new musical journey today.
2: This ride of life, it does take you to Los Angeles. It does. You get that relocation job at Apple over at Century City. Yep. You're 23 leaving West Philly for the first time. You have this quote, he said, "'When I moved to Los Angeles, I stayed at a friend of a friend's apartment in Koreatown. I was subletting it for three weeks. I was then going through their bookshelf and I found a paperback copy of You Get So Alone At Times by Charles Bukowski. I related, I was like 23. And at that time in my life, there were a lot of people, my parents, friends, who thought I was a terrible person for moving away from Philly. I had this idea, maybe I am terrible, because this is what I had to do. Did you really believe that, that that you were terrible for moving?
3: I didn't believe I was terrible. But when enough people are mad at you, I think you start to think, well, maybe I'm unaware, you know? I think I felt...
2: Maybe you're missing something.
3: Yeah, I was like, I uh, damn. But I was still gonna go for the ride. I felt like I like I was saying, I was like, well, I'm here. I'm still gonna do this. I'm gonna pursue it, And you know if I'm wrong, so be it. Maybe I am maybe I am wrong for this. Maybe my parents right. There was a period where I wasn't working at Apple yet. The job relocation hadn't happened, so I was dead broke. I had to find some work, and I was working as like a styling assistant and doing these long day jobs for very little pay and when you are an assistant you know you can't be on the phone and stuff like that you're you're grabbing minuscule things like tights and and jewelry and keeping track of you know $50,000 pieces of jewelry it's it requires a lot of focus for not a lot of money and i had a friend who was so mad at me at the time that i all of a sudden wasn't answering the phone as much and i wasn't there as much it was a good friend of mine from college and i was like i don't know what to tell you like i have to work i have to do this now my mom was still very upset that i really was going to move out here It didn't stop me from doing it. It just made me wonder if I was going to be wrong or not. But it didn't stop me from trying to find out. And I think that book, it's a lot of quick poems about being okay with being awful. I think definitely people have mixed feelings on Charles Bukowski, period. But I didn't know that at the time. I just grabbed this book off a shelf and started reading it, and it felt peaceful. Because also, I was like, I'm not as bad as him. (laughs) And somehow he's okay with himself. Because he was fucking horrible. Yeah, but he was somehow okay with himself and seeing who he was supposed to be. So
2: you were making peace with being less awful than him.
3: I think so. I think that moving somewhere, pursuing a career like mine, it just requires a period of misunderstanding from people sometimes. And I had to be okay with that period that not everybody was going to jump on board. And I don't think I also was good at articulating what I was trying to do. I just had this conversation with someone else recently. It's hard to articulate to someone that I think that one day I'll make a television show on ABC and it'll be really good and everyone will love it. You don't even know that to articulate it. It's just a you know, a dream that's in the back of you somewhere. I think it's best to not articulate something like that. Same. It's like the politicians
2: are like, I've been talking about being a politician since I was nine. And you're like, and I don't want to ever talk to you.
3: (laughs) Did you know when you were 17, were you like, I'm going to have a show called Talk Easy?
2: Yeah. And I thought, I can't wait until Emmy winner Quinta (laughs) Brunson sits down on that show. (laughs) Does that period of misunderstanding... Does that end on the day that your life changed? You wake up, leave for your morning shift at Apple, <laughs> carting your tattered H&M tote bag, mm-hmm. packed with a T-shirt, a banana, a joint, and a copy of that Bukowski book.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Because that night, you had lined up a performance at the comedy store, where you planned to try out some new dating material. Is that where the period of misunderstanding comes to an end?
3: No. No, 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 no. It wasn't. Because the misunderstanding was always coming from other people.
2: Did I just misunderstand the period of you being misunderstood?
3: Maybe. I was never misunderstanding myself. It was other people misunderstanding me. It's like a riddle. I know. Does that make sense? I think if we listen to the tape it may. Okay. No, I think I said it clearly. I felt I was doing the right thing. And so that Comedy Store moment was a big moment of like, okay, no, I'm on the right path, everyone else is wrong, sorry, guys. So what happens? We had to put on a little sketch show before stand-up, so nobody wanted to watch us anyway. No one wants to watch sketch comedy at the comedy store. They come there for stand-up, and I did it with some friends, and, you know, in spite of everything, we did a pretty good job for a crowd that really did not want to see some dorks up there doing sketch, I think it was like three of my white friends, already wild to bring to a like a black comedy night. <laughs> and they won them over. My friend Kate did this sketch about Annie, but the dog won't stop pumping her leg <laughs> while she's trying to perform. Got a good amount of chuckles. My friend Danny did a sketch wearing a dashiki that he never should have done. Um, so he fell flat on his face. I think that was a good lesson for him. Kate did this thing where she's, trying to talk to Drake, but it's just Drake lyrics, it's just great, got a few laughs, and then I did The Girl Who's Never Been on a Nice Date, it wasn't named that, it was just a character that I wanted to do of a one-sided date of this girl who's super impressed by her date, and this place was howling with laughter, and that was important to me, to get that, win that crowd over in that way, was like, okay, no, I know I have something, something special here. And uh, Joe Brown was in the audience and he said, you're really funny. And I was like, thank you, Judge Joe Brown. I've seen on your show that you're a good judge of character.
2: (laughs) Did you deliver it just like that?
3: He pretty much did. He was like, you are funny. You are a real funny girl. And I was like, wow, he's a judge.
2: (laughs) After you performed this (laughs) bit, you upload it on Instagram.
3: Yeah. And remember, this was before Instagram had video. It wasn't what it is now, you know. And the video went super viral. It was crazy that it was sharing like that, because it wasn't easy to share videos on Instagram. It was kind of word of mouth and people coming to my page to watch this video.
2: Should we take a look? Sure, if you want to. This is Quinta Brunson from 2014, in the sketch The Girl Who's Never Been on a Nice Date.
3: We're going to see one from Wall Street. The tickets was 13.95, but he paid 13.95 dollars 95 and 13 $13.95 dollars he got money. Have a good night.
1: Can I got some skittles, uh, some dips, Reese's Pieces, ah, pretzels, and a large popcorn.
3: A large? You got get money? He got money? Get it all for him. This water good? Excuse me, waitress. We y- we y'all get your water? Oh my God! You got money?
2: After that video goes viral and and you become sort of known for this, Mm -hmm. this thing, it sounds like when you're looking back on that, that you're not all the way proud of it.
3: I feel a lot of pride over it. I understand that my past is interesting, but I'm like more about the future, more about what's to come than focusing on my past, I guess.
2: And so writing this book, which comes on the heels of that video, mm-hmm. which then leads to you working at BuzzFeed. There's
3: mm-hmm.
2: a whole bunch of other accomplishments in there. Did you not enjoy writing
3: it? No, it was a little hard for me. It was a little tough to put that much about my life in print. And even the the researching of it, I just don't. I don't know. Why I, you call me? Exactly.
2: <laughs> well, we can talk about the future in a second. But there is one. Okay. <laughs> there is one. There is one thing I I do want to yeah discuss. Mm-hmm. As you have this great job at BuzzFeed and, and things are going well, you're thriving. They've made you a development partner. I think making you the youngest showrunner there. But there's one morning in February of 2017. Where that past that we've been talking about Mm -hmm. and this present that is being a creative person in the world, it kind of collides. What do you remember about that morning?
3: Uh, I just remember, you know, being in the middle of making a video with my friends and getting a call from my sister, which already was weird. But then she called me twice, which was extra weird because my sister just doesn't call me. She doesn't call me like that for no reason. And I knew something was wrong. It's almost like you ever you look at the missed call differently when you know something is wrong. It looks different to you. It's like screaming at you. And I was like, "Oh, fuck. And then my sister had told me that my little cousin was shot and killed, and it just shut everything down. I continued to work for the rest of the day, but mentally, I was like, I'm not home. I'm not with my family. My little cousin didn't deserve that, which was really tough for me to reconcile with. And it's not like I hadn't experienced deaths before where the person didn't deserve it, but it just really bothered me. I was like, he's a kid. He was 17. 17 years old. It really, really pissed me off. And it made me mad at the city. It made me mad that I had left the city. Not, It's that irrational thing of like, somehow you believe that if you weren't there, that wouldn't have happened. It made me mad at myself for being so far away from my family at such a um, a critical time. I was sad I was so far away from them. I was upset I was around a bunch of people who didn't understand. I wasn't mad at them. I was just upset, once again, at myself for being so far away and around a bunch of people who couldn't understand the situation. And I didn't want to give them the opportunity to, which I talk about a lot in the book. You put a lot on yourself in that moment and being like, I don't want to talk about my cousin." being shot and killed with people who have never had that experience before. I don't want to give them room to say anything wrong because I don't want these people to say anything wrong to me. So I don't want to tell them about it so that they have the chance to. The thing that struck me
2: was that the way you decided to get through it was to go back and continue making the video that you were making before you got that phone call. Mm Mm-hmm. How did you do that?
3: I don't know. It could be a fight-or-flight response. It could be a trauma response. But I just did. I was like, I, don't, I didn't have a choice. It was either go home or keep working. And I chose to keep working because I like what I do for a living. And I find it therapeutic, inspiring, fun. So that seemed like the better option at the time until... My need was to go home and be by myself. And so now I still find myself juggling a similar issue. Right now in Philadelphia, the murder rate is at the highest it's ever been. It really, really affects me. And sometimes I want to like post about it and talk about it. But then I'm like, okay, should I talk about it? Or should I not use social media and just use it to promote app?" <laughs> And it's like making a choice of this thing is really affecting me. It's really sad. It's affecting my city. It's breaking my heart. But I think my job right now is to put more 22-minute goodness into the world because I'm not sure what me talking about this in public is going to do. And maybe that's wrong. I probably could do more. But the thing is, I've tried to do more in the past and it feels like there's nothing for me to do but try to put more Abbott out. Because at at a certain extent, it's like, yeah, I can talk about all I want. I've tried this, but it's up to policymakers. It's up to politicians. It's up to people to like put conflict resolutions into our environments, into our neighborhoods. And that's all work I can do in the background and, you know, work with councilmen and work with groups and stuff like that. But ultimately, I think my job is probably to put more Abbott out. I think that's where I am now. It's, just, it's the same kind of juggling, though, you know?
2: You write about that juggling in the book. You said, I realized in that moment, after my cousin's passing, that I had spent my entire life separating my personal life from professional, creating invisible barriers between who I was with my family and who I was in the world. It started in school and it was continuing with my work. My job, quote-unquote, was to be relatable, And the deeper I got into my family dynamics, the less relatable I felt. Sure, everyone's family is wacky, but there is something so uniquely specific about the Black experience that it's very hard for the white majority demographic of this country to understand. I guess I'm wondering, in 2022, that separation between personal and professional, Uh between the person you really are and the person you present. Do you think Abbott Elementary is your way of bridging those two people?
3: Yeah, I think inadvertently. um, Yeah, I think so. I think Abbott is a lot of what I believe in, my ethos, my principles. It's a lot of my past. It's so much of who I am in something that's a little bit more consumable for the public. And I could talk all I want, but I think making things to me feels more honest. That feels like the best way for me to communicate with the rest of the world. I also don't feel a need for my personal life to be all over the place. I think that it's actually quite healthy for me to have things that the rest of the world never knows about or never gets a peek into. I think I don't need to give so much of myself to the world. I can do that through making things. I can decide what I want to be out there and put it into a structure I trust. Like, even if someone doesn't like Abbott, that's okay. This is, but this is the art that I've chosen to put out there that I like and that is clearer to me than me just rambling on like I'm doing now.
2: I don't think it's okay. I think if someone doesn't like it, Send them to me.
3: I saw some people that would say we have this charter school storyline this year that that's starting and it's you know, whatever. And P- I did already see that that, that it ruffled some feathers. Oh, well, people at charter schools got mad? There it wasn't a huge majority. I think for the most part, an audience understands this is a show. We're gonna have a storyline. It's not like wouldn't we're like it wouldn't be the first time. It there, wouldn't be schools. the first time for those schools. It's not it's, not, it's a show and it, these are characters who are relating to the experience. I went to charter schools. I went to also went to public schools. It's just an experience. But I think what feels good about Abbott is like I'm able to stand on my own two feet with it. I'm able to be like, thank you for engaging with my art. I think that's okay that you don't <laughs> like it. And I think that's fine. And um, one of my favorite things I ever studied in high school was the visual arts and studying people like Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera and Henry Asawa Tanner, people who were making pieces that upset a lot of people, but they also brought so many other people joy. And, and, you know, Frida Kahlo's work, there were people who were upset she was naked in it, but other people were moved to tears by seeing her imagery. And I think that's the beauty of like making something. It's like this came from the heart. I don't know what to say. If you don't like it, that's okay. Thank you for engaging. But I don't know. I feel much more secure in making things. I find, like, reality stars fascinating because I'm just like, that seems like the scariest thing on earth to me. But in some ways, I mean, you
2: put so much of yourself yeah. into a weekly sitcom.
3: True. But one day I hope to not. Like, one day I hope I make something that is nothing like Abbott and there's a little less of me in it. I think it'll still come from, of course, from the heart, but I don't, you know, you know, I don't know. Well, before that happens. Yes.
2: You've mentioned a couple times how you like to talk about uh, the future.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: So why don't we, as we leave, think about what that looks like. In October of 2020, you did an interview with Vulture. And they asked you, how has quarantine affected the way you approach your comedy and your audience? Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Here's what you said. I'm motivated to champion the stories of everyday people even more now. I always wanted to, but... I think it was exciting prior to this pandemic to talk about my cutesy pseudo privilege problems. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Problems are problems and truth is truth. But now I wanna help create stories based around people who make communities work. Teachers, nurses, neighbors, carpenters. Bars. People who I feel aren't appreciated enough.
3: Yeah, because that was before Abbott. Before
2: Abbott. Yeah. Now that we're in 2022 together, Everything's fixed. Everything's fixed. Season two is here. Yep. 34-year-old Quinta. Two.
3: (laughs) 32-year-old Quinta. Two more years. 24-year-old Quinta. (laughs) What do you want? I want to keep making Habit. I'm excited about that. I also see a world where I make another show. I see it. Remember I told you about like the little back of the, the... You know, something back there. Just gearing me and veering me towards something. I feel it. Some feel tingling it feeling. Yeah. It's going towards another show that I think is gonna be really good. <laughs> Haven't done anything before. <laughs> Every now and then I'll meet someone and, and you know we'll start getting the talk. And then I'm like, oh man, yeah, this idea I have for later will be happening. Um, I want to, I really want to explore having a family. I don't know what that looks like right now. I don't know which way that's going to go, but having the the, the desire for it is going to take it somewhere. I met someone recently who has children that they help. And I think that that is that person's version of family, you know? And I think I'm interested in what that looks like for me. I've always just saw myself like having a child, but I just don't know what that's going to look like for me now. So it's one of the biggest thoughts in my head. What do you think it will look like? I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. It's going to be corny, but one of the best things I ever learned from working at Apple was being comfortable as being like, I don't know. Let's find out. And I think it's really healthy to just accept an I don't know sometimes. So I really I really don't know. There's so many options. People uh, have other people carry for them. People work carrying a child into their shows sometimes people adopt. I know people who are really good aunts. I'm experiencing that with my nieces and nephews right now. I took my nephews, my nephews and my niece, but I have a nephew who's only six to Disney. And I was like, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever, 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 ever done. Watching him run around and just scream with little Grogu ears on. And I want to go to some theme parks in other countries. That's the only thing that's (laughs) like (laughs) I really want to go to Shanghai. They have a Jurassic Park ride that... Are you about to plug... I'm not! (laughs) A Disney ride? No, no, no. They have a Pirates of the Caribbean ride that I just, like, need to get on. They also have a Beauty and the Beast ride that is mind-blowing. I need to see it in person. I love rides. I love theme parks. But America's just not doing it like the other girls. (laughs) The closest we have is the rise of the resistance, which is fucking flames. But what I'm trying to tell people is that in other countries, they've been on that.
2: I was really with you.
3: Until I could. I said that.
2: Until all the rides. I love rides. I don't even know what you're talking about.
3: You need to play a clip of that. Forget my videos. You need to play <laughs> the Beauty and the Beast ride. Okay. I'm serious. It's really cool. So that that's really the only couple of things on my like to-do list. Some small
2: things, some big things. Yep.
3: Yeah. But you know what? I bet my want to go ride that Beauty and the Beast ride, it'll lead to some other beautiful thing, you know?
2: Wherever it takes you.
3: I don't like your tone. (laughs) I was going to say something positive. Okay.
2: You don't like my tone? (laughs)
3: What was this, Twitter?
2: (laughs) Have you had a problem with my tone? No, not until
3: that moment. Well,
2: I was going to say something really nice. All right, go ahead. Well, no, now I'm not. I want to hear it. Okay.
3: Wherever it takes me. Wherever the ride takes you. Literal or metaphorical. Mm -hmm. I'm excited for you. I'm excited to to get on the ride. Wow. This is really such a full, did you know this? Did you create this metaphor? Did you know? Because no, you didn't know I would tell you about the rides. Wow. This is good. Has it been okay? This is is good podcast. I would listen to this. This is a good
2: podcast. (laughs) It'll be your first podcast.
3: You go, this is good TV. This is good material right here.
2: I guess all we have to do now is check back in and 10 years and see how it went.
3: Maybe. Who knows where I'll be in 10 years.
2: (laughs) Compliment followed by a diss. That feels right. I had a really good time. Quinta Brunson, anytime.
3: Bye. We did it. We did it.
2: We covered a lot of ground. We did Yeah, I think in 10
3: years. Maybe. (laughs)
2: That's our show. Special thanks to Corbin McConnell and the team at Persona PR, ABC, and of course, Quinta Brunson. You can watch new episodes of Abbott Elementary every Wednesday on ABC and then stream them the next day on Hulu. To learn more about Quinta and her work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd recommend our conversations with Abby Jacobson, Bill Hader, Tessa Thompson, Hiro Murai, Pedro Pascal, Lena Dunham, and Nick Hofferman. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support TalkEasy by purchasing one of our mugs they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the program with a friend. The second best thing you can do is review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Giving us five stars on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was engineered by Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck, illustrations by Krisha Shenoy, photographs by Julius Chu, video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mila Bell, Eric Sandler, Cole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Kennig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fergoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Congresswoman Corey Bush. Until then, stay safe and so long.
0: Enter now at tmobile.com/unconventionalawards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender
3: maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast
0: looking for extraordinary perks,